From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 168 of the Killing It podcast this is carl joined as always by dave and ryan and we're ready for another spectacular show well and we'll start us off with with our fun question i'm leaving it open-ended answer as you would like what's your favorite form of entertainment well, I'm going to go with digital entertainment, so I will kick us oh. off. <laughs> and so, if 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 asked, it actually it, for me it's it's video games. I don't mind saying like a, like a great story driven game for anybody who's a gamer. I'm playing through Horizon Forbidden West right now as my current obsession. I'm literally holding off on the final bit because I'm enjoying the game so much. I don't want the experience to end, uh, so I'm holding off on the final. Yeah, so I'm like doing side quests rather than finish the story because the story is so compelling and I'm not quite ready for the experience to end. Uh, and I expect to tee up Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy as my next game. Uh, and and I, like, I literally have like two or three beyond that thinking like, okay, that'll be the rough order. So for me, like if I was given a choice of like, hey, how do you, what kind of like digital entertainment? It would be that answer. But the answer, but it could be any entertainment. See, I will go with uh, a good traditional version of a movie in a theater, right? Like I, I appreciate the experience. I appreciate the escapism. I appreciate like that shared community uh, participation where lots of people have the same experience all at once. I, I think that we've, we in a multimedia megaverse world where we live with so many disparate entertainment opportunities, it's, it's nearly impossible to do them with a group anymore. But I will put an asterisk on there and say the movie has to not suck, right? And, and for the last couple of years, uh, we get the, the economic challenges that the industry went through. And so there were some things that were not necessarily good enough to trek to a theater for. But uh, I think they're getting back to their stride. I will honestly say so far this year, there have been at least six or eight where you were like, Oh, that was worth the extra money to sit in a theater chair. Top Gun Maverick was worth the extra money to sit in a theater. <laughs> wow. I don't think I've been to the, the real live movie theater five times in the last five years. And I don't think that would be different if there weren't a pandemic. So uh, just keeping it PG, I will say my favorite entertainment is having dinner outside at night with friends near the water with live music right the the, the more oh, during the summer the more pieces of that you put in the puzzle the happier i am and uh it's actually one of the reasons i live in sacramento we have two rivers that merge in the middle of town and there's just there's water and opportunities to eat dinner by the water all over the place <laughs> it's also why i like beaches so you know there's that Absolutely. See, dinner outside by the water. I'm in on that all the time. So, I, I, oh, and I, I and I always love it. I never say no to live music. Like, it doesn't matter. Right? Yeah. I, it does never say no to live music. You will never be disappointed. Yeah. And as a quirky little observation, I will say I moved from one major metropolitan area to a, a, a quite a bit smaller one recently. And yet, what I will say is, here in the Salt Lake City, Utah area way more interesting live concerts through the summer than we ever used in to Seattle? get in Seattle. 
Yeah, you would wow. think I, Seattle invented alternative music in a certain genre, but uh, they just, you, you get some in the big names, right? But this year here, the summer lineup, I, I have more shows than I have weekends to fit them into. That's impressive. What a great problem. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by the Small Biz Thoughts technology community. Check us out at smallbizthoughts.org. Forms, templates, and checklists are just the start. Our community includes all of the best-selling books on managed services in all available formats, plus free training, members-only programs, and the best business training available to managed service providers anywhere. Plus, we have weekly live members-only Zoom calls, the average member saves more than 200% of their membership cost each year. We are totally dedicated to your success. Just because you're in business for yourself doesn't mean you have to go it alone. Join us today at smallbizthoughts.org. All right, let's uh, let's jump into our first topic here, guys, and uh, we're going to point you to a resource that we find interesting. It's called Rest of World, a link to an article that asks the question, not just an American question, but a global question. What exactly is a tech company anyway? Right. I think we've all lived through this in a couple of generations where we have experienced the definitions. They've migrated a little bit based on whether or not they were making technology, whether they were heavily utilizing technology, or whether they were just delivering other stuff with technology. But these days, as this article, which is a very interesting article that you guys should spend a couple of minutes with, they point out that even hard goods companies, right? You make furniture, you, you sell equipment, they can be thought of as a technology company. So I would like to ask you guys, What's the criteria to be in tech these days? You know, it's interesting over at CompTIA, one of the ongoing conversations is always, uh, how do we get people to realize that they are in tech? Because every company is a tech company. You know, so I've met people who say, oh, I, I don't know anything about technology. Oh, well, what do you do? I manage a database for a shoe repair franchise. I'm like, well, you do what? <laughs> like, you don't think you're in tech? Like, uh, you know, every company has to, almost every company has to use technology to be successful. And this is even true all over the place. This is not just like a quote unquote first world problem. Everybody's got technology and they use it all the time. And so um, it's it's sort of like, mm, it's become more of a skill set than, than an industry. If you're creating software, okay, that's one kind of company. But if you're using software, that's every company. So I think everybody, everybody's a tech company. Well, so everyone is a tech company. And I will additionally note that this is one of those debates which incredibly interesting and ultimately not that useful. So I have to, have to sort of observe, <laughs> observe the like, we explore it to understand the business model less than like impose direct lines. I think it happens to do more with where you are kind of on the the quote unquote the adoption curve, a variant of the Gartner hype cycle. Like if I'm thinking about where they are with kind of a potential and how much of a new technology drives what they're going to do is how I will skew it. 
my the example that this article used was e-commerce, right? And so when back in the the you know the aughts and the and such when where and and early t teens of this this decade or of this uh, you know this period of time, uh, you would e-commerce was rare and it was a leading edge kind of piece from an adoption perspective, and so you were leaning into something that was different than what your competitors would do. But of course now e-commerce is essentially assumed as part of your strategy, and so it's been more adopted, and then it becomes about then it becomes a component of other industries. And so I look at it and I sort of say like it's about that where it is on the adoption curve using technology and technology does not necessarily mean information technology right it could be broader than that but i look at it from the perspective of okay where on the curve are they if they are uh in a in an area where it has not been widely adopted i tend to say that's where it becomes that is where i measure where technology companies live versus if it has been widely adopted within an industry then we are talking about that industry versus being a tech company. So I would I would go a slightly different way of dividing the world, and I would look at how technology dependent they are. I think there's companies that do create the technology. They're clearly tech companies. And then there are companies that are technology dependent, like they consume it and they know that they have to do that investment. And then there's companies who are resistant to, to technology. They don't think they're in the technology business, even though they are. And so I'm, I'm happy to say, okay, that's on a whole different pile, right? And, and I want to do business with those who are technology dependent and know it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and see, that's, the way I would define it is proximity to your P&L. In other words, how close or significantly dependent on technology is the essential activity that you do to create economic value? In which case, that brings me to, there are people who make technology, there are people who sell technology, service and support technology, and then there are people who buy it and use it for their own business functions. I will say that I have seen a number of law firms that are, at their heart, technology firms. They, they, they think that way, they deploy that way, they operate that way, and while it might be in the guise of legal services, it is still a technology firm. And I think that's the way we, we kind of look at it. I'll say it's funny because as somebody who grew up in this industry, when I was a kid in technology, I, I, I would occasionally sit next to somebody on an airplane when you're traveling around to go to a million places and you'd ask them, what do they do? And they would say something not in technology. And I would get this look on my face like, no kidding, grandpas still do that. Wow, I didn't realize there were still actual adults who did things that were not technology. We're a very insular community, right? We think we are the world, but in a very real way, I struggle to think of a business model that would not be much more economically viable if it were not based on technology. And that's I think that's good news, but that also raises the bar for competition. So, you know, those of us who grew up in it, we might have to freshen our story. Right. It's, it's really interesting because the one thing none of us brought up, which the article does, is sort of the investment in VC component of that. And I think that's very much a component of where we all live and, you know, that, that IT services space, the service delivery portion of things versus when most 
people immediately latch onto tech company, they often are thinking product. And I just think it's an interesting sort of bit for our world and our listeners to say, look, there is a separation between tech products and tech services. They are related, but there is an important separation between the two. And I think we all think that all the money is in services. So I do have uh, another thing I want to add to this, but it fits better in the next topic. So I'll save it for that. All right, so <laughs> save that idea as I take us to topic number two. And the question is, comes up based on another article that we spotted, which is on, on Insider with a fantastic headline that says, Cloud Computing's favorite new business model is starting to look like a huge risk as markets sour. And as you get into this, is the it's a discussion around pay on a consumption basis, pay for usage. Uh, you know, and it, it is the very familiar billing model that most of us talk about, which is a subscription-based, consumption-based model. The article makes makes the argument that, well, during downtimes, people look at the, their subscription and their usage fees, and that's where they're looking to make cost reductions versus their infrastructure investments, that old CapEx, OpEx discussion. So I wanted to throw it to, to us as to arbitrate, and we will decide on behalf of the industry. Uh, <laughs> Do we actually think that subscription consumption model is souring and it sours due to downtimes? So the what I was going to bring up was that we live in an era where what constitutes a business model can be made up on the fly by people that you don't normally think of as even being involved in business at the level that we think of it. I recently had two Lyft drivers who, as far as I know, have never met each other tell me that what they're because i always ask what's your real gig you know and and both of them said well i have friends in another country we buy things from different stores online and we sell them at different stores online and just make money off of the difference in price and they, they, they have these sophisticated concepts of drop shipping and whether or not you want to take ownership and whether or not you need a import license and on and on and on and on. <laughs> Neither one of them has any investment in warehouses or storage facilities or any of that kind of stuff. And both of them understood that there are times when they want to subscribe to a service by the piece and times when they want to subscribe to a service uh, in an unlimited capacity. And, and, and they these were 20 somethings. And I, I was really struck like, there's a whole world out there that's literally defining our future. And we need to like find it and tune into it because these people are making enough money to pay their rent in California. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they both had like nearly identical business models. And so what we think of as like the business model that's successful, uh, I'm not sure we get to make that decision. See, I, I would agree with you. I don't think we get to put rules and boundaries on it, but I think that we need to answer the question depending on whose point of view you are seeing this from, the seller or the buyer. 
because what I can what I can say for sure is that the research and the statistics indicate that the customer is nowhere near souring on this and adoption rates on subscription models are skyrocketing. Whether you look at uh, Technology and Services Industry Association, if you look at uh, the, the general sell-through data at distribution, if you look at uh, a number of different reputable sources of actual market data, the rate of consumption, if you say transaction or perpetual model versus subscription and recurring model, the, the tide is turning aggressively in the favor of the people who say, I want to buy your stuff. I do not want to pay for it all at once. I will take it on the drip and I will do it the, at my leisure, at my consumption level. From the other side of the table might be a slightly different question. Do you, see, whenever we talk to people about, oh, you know, you grew up selling products and now you need to move that product business into the business of recurring and subscription revenues, 100% of the time, the biggest concern that they have is, oh, but what if the customer cancels? And the answer is, well, that's why you have a job. It's called adoption and customer success and make sure that they actually see and get the value from what you are selling them. If you do your job, they won't cancel. But the evidence is actually pretty clear. The most recent that I've seen, we did, uh, we participated in a great big study over the last two years that looked at the resilience of revenue in different business models, product transaction versus subscription versus a project-based professional service. And we found that through the pandemic, the subscription business model was something like seven times more likely to maintain its revenue through an economic downturn than a product transaction business. So I, I would argue scientifically as well as just observationally, it, we're nowhere near done with that business model. Right. This is this is that genre of articles where you like to create uh, tension during a, you know the ups and downs of an economy to create tension. I, I look at this and sort of say like, no. The answer is no. They are not. <laughs> if if you're delivering value, customers do want to that pay what you use is such a logical extension for the way people operate. It justifies completely in the way they do. The most of the time it's stuff they don't want to own anyway. They get all the benefits of a consumption model. Like it just is so logical to me. They will they will definitely evaluate expenses during downtime, but as we know from most businesses, payroll ends up being the number one expense, which by the way, you not only when you reduce payroll, you then also reduce your consumption. So you see the benefits throughout the business, right? So if you're in a if you're going into downtime, you're much more likely to be constraining the hiring let people either let people go or not hire new people or, or have natural attrition or whatever that is. Oh, and by the way, please take care of them. Like you do that earlier and be generous. Don't wait and be aggressive. But point being that you're getting all the benefits through a consumption model of the technology versus if I'm doing product buys, well, I don't, that doesn't help me as much. So it even aligns in a da in downtime, which is not as popular to say, particularly because those selling the software and consuming always like to talk about it always growing. Well, there is a downtime, but as the consumer, you're very happy that you have those levers that you can scale up and down. It's not all or nothing. Well, and uh, let me just chat a little bit about my own personal business, because I think a lot of this has to do with 
the maturity level of the buyer and the seller, right? So I have two pieces of my business. On one hand, I sell classes by the each. So you can buy, you can sign up and take one class. It's a certain amount of money. And then it, when it's done, you know, you, you go buy another class. Well, or you could sign up for the whole big package, right? And for roughly three times that price, you get all the classes, right? Thrown in and you can consume as many or as few as you want. But the day you stop paying, well, you stop taking classes, right? So, you know, some people are at a place in their life they want to buy that. they like, I got $300, I will invest in this. Other people are at a point in their life where they're like, uh, I have to have my business grow and so I will make a bigger investment knowing I have unlimited access, right? So both of those are right, both of those are just and noble and good and anybody can choose the model they want, um, but businesses need to tune into that. And to Dave's point about the economic downturn, part of that is when the economy goes down, you need to point to the people who are saving money by buying in bulk rather than saying, oh, it's only the people who've got a bunch of money that buy the big subscription. That's not true. It's the people who want to save money that buy the big subscription. Well, you know. And Carl, you made, you made a very subtle point there that I wanted to make gets called out because where we were talking about this conversation in the perspective of an or, you offer it as an and. Right. So so instead, what, what you what you allow is you allow customers to choose what they want. Oh, and by the way, should their circumstances change, they can switch and still engage with you. That's a critical because oftentimes, again, it's look at the way content is created. It is very interesting to position it as an or because that makes an interesting debate. But the actual answer there was, well, just do it as an and. I can go to Amazon Prime and get unlimited videos. But if the show that I want is not available this month, I can't watch it and I have to go buy it. Right. So I actually own some videos so that I can watch them whenever the hell I want. And it doesn't matter whether or not they're featured on Prime this week. Exactly. See, now I will make one last quick comment. I think the and is the correct model. Let customer choose. Don't limit yourself to people who say, I only buy on subscription or I only buy on a transaction. Uh, sell to them both, right? Like do that. I admit that that means your financial operations and modeling will be more complicated. But I swear it can be managed. And if you don't know how to manage that, I have just spent the last six months building a magic spreadsheet to show you the financial impact of the mix of perpetual and recurring. So uh, seriously, it can be done. Ryan has a magic spreadsheet, everybody. Ooh. I do. <laughs> it's got colors. It's got multiple tabs. It's Speaking awesome. of magic spreadsheets, uh, we often think of ransomware when we think of that, uh, the, 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 the riskies taking all of our money. Our third topic is about, it's, it's a bit of a follow-up to uh, the discussion we had about Wired and how uh, law enforcement agencies... Dave actually predicted this, like uh, they are actually, we're, you know, they're, they're doing this stuff in the background and now we're going to find out about it, that they are figuring out how to uh, use cryptocurrency transactions in a way to track the bad guys and to put an end to certain things. So we're pointing to an article uh, from nextgov.com uh, about the Department of Homeland Security actually having some success in uh, turning the crypto trans, uh, cryptocurrency transactions into something that they can track and put a stop to 
effectively. And, and the result is uh, to actually diminish the amount of ransomware uh, that is being, uh, you know, perpetuated on the rest of us. So, you know, in some ways, I think a lot of people have been very depressed in the last few years, like this ransomware thing just is never going to get better and we're never going to get a handle on it. And, and it's because this myth that has been perpetuated that you have perfect anonymity. Um, that myth is being shattered left and right, and I think it's a great piece of news for all of us. Um, not good for the Russians, but you know I'm okay with that too. So it's it's in, so I want to, I want to be more enthusiastic than I am in a way. Like is <laughs> is the because because by the way I I actually do still believe things are going to get worse before they get they get better. Uh, and, and I, I actually don't think we're quite at the point where things are, are, are ready. There's enough critical mass on law enforcement and organization and law structures and co cooperation. Like when I look at the landscape, I'm like, oh, yeah, the, the, the criminals are really, 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 really good. Like they're really good. And we're, we're playing. I feel like we're just playing such catch up. That said, I also want to celebrate the steps moving forward like this, where it's like, oh yeah, they're, get, they're getting their stuff together. I see the work happening. I, I can predict and see at some point they will start achieving some level of critical mass. They will get there. Uh, there is distinct investment. Like that, that is all to be celebrated, but, I, but I'm cautious on this because I actually think that, we're, that they're not, there isn't enough mass yet to overcome the accelerated side and the, the adversary side. And I just want to be cautious with my, with my enthusiasm. Well, and, and to be reasonable like that, I think is wise in the cybersecurity space because, again, the old cliche is we have to be right 100% of the time. They only have to be right 1% of the time and they make uh, untold wealth. I do think it's very positive news that we have actual enforcement cases that give us precedent on which we can build agreement and momentum, not just domestically, but internationally for that regulatory environment. It's been a bunch of stories about boogeymen for a lot of years, right? Like, whoa, this is gonna happen, and oh no, the ransomware, and that guy in his mom's basement. It is not that, and we finally have proof and we have proof of, you know, it's this, it's the old story of guerrilla warfare, right? When, when you do not use traditional means of military operation, it's very difficult to identify who the enemy is and to attack them in any meaningful way. And for the last decade or so, cybersecurity in general, but ransomware in particular, has had that kind of a discussion flavor. We don't know who they are. We can't possibly protect against them. We just have to protect against the infinite possibility of random activity, and there's no way you can be successful with that. Except now we have a foothold. We've made some progress, and you can find the bad actors. I mean, eventually, every single spam message is sent by someone. We can find them. Every single robocall comes from someone. We can find them. If we have the right regime, if we have the right protocols, if we have the right regulatory frameworks, and then everybody agrees to enforce. Frankly, I think that what's changed the personality of this story right now is the fact that we don't tiptoe around who the quote unquote bad guys are anymore, right? You and I have been saying this for the last 10 years. Like, we know where this stuff is coming from. Wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm not going to say it out loud if you won't. 
That's not true anymore, right? There's a war going on. We know who's on each side of that and we know what their activities are in this process. So the industry is kind of coming out and going, good guys, bad guys, now we know which side we're on. That's a heck of a step forward. This is also something that it's it's almost akin to uh, the early days of uh, trying to fight spam by blacklisting certain servers. We are literally building an international list, cooperation from many countries, of money laundering servers that we're just not going to allow people to have traffic through. And when more and more countries uh, participate in this, uh, it becomes a, a system where eventually we will take control of a server and we will take control of the bitcoins and all the other cryptocurrencies and it's it's almost you know back to the al capone days <laughs> we're, we're going to grab their empire and uh we're going to use their systems to convict them well it's exactly what you said last week carl um the the idea is oh it's perfect protection and anonymity because you are inside the blockchain <laughs> that is exactly the polar opposite of what it actually is as long as you are behind the wall, I don't know who you are. But once I'm inside, I know literally everything about you and where you've been and what you've done. I think that that's, the, you know, that will be the survivable technology feature of this whole crypto revolution will be a, an immutable record to the degree that we believe that it's actually immutable, right? Um, I think that will survive. And I think that a lot of the flash in the pan stuff around cryptocurrencies and tokens and whatnot will turn out to have been a whole lot of really modern versions of snake oil selling. <laughs> but the blockchain will survive. But ironically, it will survive because the good guys use it as a platform for enforcement, not because the bad guys use it as a platform for hiding. Well, look, I, I would be remiss if I didn't observe that it's funny how the, the tenets of decentralization are actually allowing for incredible centralization of power and control. Yes. Uh, it, it's let, let's let's observe that that is it, that is there's a lot more hype around decentralization than actual implementation. Uh, and, and so you know, I'm. I remain pretty skeptical, a little bit of a plug for, hey, I did an interview with an actual expert on crypto and had some, some discussions on, on business of tech around where the actual stuff is going. Uh, I am a little bit more cautiously optimistic about that space, but I was very glad to hear that much of my skepticism is justified. And you're going to send me a link so I can put that in the show notes and make sure that everybody has access to that interview as well. Final note from me on this is, uh, you know, when we published the note about Wired, some people listened to the podcast, but they didn't go and read the long article. I don't blame them. But then they proceeded to argue with me on Facebook that, oh, my God, you don't understand what's going on. Da, 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 da. I'm like, talk to the FBI, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't make this stuff up, you know. Uh, well, you know. We're just about done here. I do want to take a second and encourage everybody to, to like us and share us and thumbs up and give us a review on Apple and any other podcatcher you have and spread the word. Our audience is growing and we appreciate you. Sadly, that will do it for episode 168 of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.